huge thank you to Hunt a Killer for helping me bring you all this week's podcast episode. If you're anything like me, your ideal Friday or Saturday night is spent at home on the couch in your pajamas, maybe drinking a little bit of wine or some hard seltzer with your family and your dogs. Because I would rather stay in than go out, I absolutely love Hunt a Killer. If you haven't heard of Hunt a Killer yet, it is a murder mystery game told over six boxes. In each box, you will get things like witness statements and autopsy reports, and using these clues, you can solve a murder by the time you get to the final box. At only $30 per box, Hunt a Killer is way less expensive than a night at the town or a night at the movie theater, and it's an affordable way to spend time with your family and relax at home. If you like my podcast or anything true crime related, you will absolutely love Hunt a Killer. And the best part is that with the link in my show notes, you will get 30% off your first box. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Doe Identify podcast. I am so excited to be back. It has been a few weeks since I covered the Finley Creek Jane Doe with Mel Jetterberg. And I have gotten so much exposure from that podcast episode. And so if you are new here, welcome to my podcast. My goal for this podcast is to get Jane and John Doe's exposure and to kind of advocate for them because they don't have a family doing so. And so that is just my goal with this podcast. But I am so happy that you are here and you are tuning in. And I hope you love this episode just as much as the other episode. I got a lot of positive feedback on it. And even like family and friends were texting me saying that it's my best episode yet. So I am so proud of that episode and I'm so happy that I got so many new listeners. So today I'm going to be covering the Brunswick County John Doe or the Brunswick River John Doe or the John Doe of 1977 according to the Brunswick Sheriff's Office. This John Doe definitely has quite a few names, but before we go ahead and get into his case, I would like to give some podcast recommendations to you guys. Again, if you're new here, I really like to shout out other podcasts because there are so many podcasts out there today and it's just kind of hard to find some that are just like your style. I feel like everyone kind of sticks to like the same style of podcast, whether it be more scripted or it might be more conversational like mine I know I definitely prefer conversational kind of like crime junkie and like vanish podcast I really love those types of podcasts and so today I want to give a shout out to stolen the search for Jermaine that is a podcast covering a missing woman named Jermaine she was a mom and it is just a really interesting case. I think I know who did it and I think I the detectives agree with me, but definitely go ahead and give it a listen. No one has been convicted of her case, so I'm not going to say any names of who I think did it, but it is a true crime podcast covering just one case and it's very like documentary style, but it's also very like conversational and you feel like you're there searching for her as well. It's a really great podcast and I really just like the production of it. So now that we have gone through my podcast recommendation of this week, let's go ahead and cover the Brunswick County John Doe. That is the name I'm going to be calling him today because that is kind of like 
the most popular name that I have been seeing online of his. And so I'm just going to call him that. But if I said like a name that you are more familiar with, just pretend I'm saying that. So on May 13th, 1977, a young man was found in the Brunswick River in North Carolina. The portion of the river he was found in was just in between Belleville and Wilmington, North Carolina. For context, Belleville, North Carolina has a population of only 2,500 people, while Wilmington has a population of about 120,000 people. But investigators believe he may have been put in the Cape Fear River, which feeds into the Brunswick River. If you're not familiar with North Carolina, they have a lot of smaller rivers kind of on their east coast. And so there's just like a lot of small rivers that feed into each other that eventually go into the ocean. But the Cape Fear River starts in Moncure, North Carolina. Moncure is about 31 miles southwest of Raleigh, North Carolina. I hope I'm saying that correctly. I've heard it pronounced a million other ways, but you know what I mean. And the Cape Fear River is 191 miles in length, which makes it very long already, but then it feeds into other rivers, as I said, including the Brunswick River. But it's also fed from other rivers, if that makes sense. If you go on Google Maps and look up Moncure, North Carolina, you'll see what I mean. According to the Doe Network, he may have been put in the Cape Fear River near Elizabethtown in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Elizabethtown has a population of about 4,000 people and Fayetteville has a population of about 210,000 people. These two cities are about 40 miles away from each other, so I'm assuming he could have been put in the river in between the two, and I didn't see any information about why they think it was in between these two cities, but that is just what some reports say, but do just kind of take note that the Cape Fear River is about 191 miles, and so there is kind of a possibility that he could have been put somewhere near there, but also he was in the river for a few weeks before he was found. I'm not sure if they did some type of calculation and were like, okay, the water was moving at this speed. So he had to have been, you know, put in at this point because of the river speed and he ended up here. I'm really not sure. I'm going to assume that's how because the autopsy, they were definitely able to determine that it was about two weeks before he was found. When he was found, it was very obvious that foul play was involved. He was found wrapped in burlap, which is also known as hessian and crocus, depending on the country that you are from. I know in Canada and America, we call it burlap, but it's kind of like that woven material. And to me, this was such an odd detail. We commonly hear about you know, dead bodies being put in duffel bags and suitcases or even like trash bags to hold, you know, murder victims. But this is the first time I have ever heard of someone being like in burlap, whether it be a burlap sack or a burlap fabric, and it was just like wrapped around them. In the United States, burlap is mostly used for crafting in kind of like pillowcases or maybe just like some sort of a decorative piece. It's not a fabric that people 
you know, have around their house quite often, I feel like. I could be completely wrong, but I feel like you have to be really crafty to have burlap just like kind of like hanging around your house, especially enough burlap to wrap up a body in. And so I wonder if the person who killed him had this on hand often or they knew someone or lived with someone who had this on hand often. It's just kind of a question that I thought of. And he also had burlap around his wrist and around his neck. And the only thing that he had on were blue socks and that burlap that he was wrapped in. And despite having burlap around his neck, that is not what killed him according to the autopsy. The cause of death was found to be a drowning, which is really horrible. I feel like drowning is one of the worst ways to die. It's just like you're aware of what's going on. It's just horrible. But this makes sense because burlap is like that woven material and it's quite like it has like holes in it, if that makes sense, because it's woven. And so it just makes sense that it filled up quite quickly despite it being, you know, wrapped around him. And the lead investigator did point out that one of his hands was sticking out of the burlap. So it looked like he was alive whenever he was put in the water. And that made me like so sick to my stomach whenever I was researching for this case. It's just like really horrible to think about how people spent their last moments. Unfortunately, because he was in the water for so long, he was severely decomposed. But here is what we do know. This young man was an African-American male who was between the ages of 18 and 30 years old. He had black hair and was about 112 pounds. The autopsy notes that the body was very bloated, so I'm not sure if that was including the bloating or not. If you've listened to my podcast before, you know that I'm very interested in weight and height and if it accounts for whatever circumstance they were found in and that's mostly because you can easily remember someone you can think of like anyone that has gone missing from your life or that you haven't seen and think about you know how tall they were or how much they may have weighed and For example, if this young man was about 90 pounds and he was just bloated to 112 pounds because of the water that he was sitting in for so long, you know, that's a big difference. So that's why I kind of just want to point that out. We're not sure if it was 112 pounds. It could have been lighter. And also, this really struck me because I feel like 112 pounds for an adult male is really quite light. He was 5'9", so he was about average height, and I didn't find that the autopsy said like he was malnourished, possibly ran out of energy and drowned. Um, they didn't highlight that or anything like that, but just his weight was quite shocking. Mostly harmless was 5'8", and 83 pounds, and he likely starved to death, um, and it was like a prolonged um, lack of nutrients. So he was you know, not super close to that, but it is, you know, 29 pounds. It's a 29 pound difference um, between, you know, starving to death and being alive. My point is, is he was really on the skinny side and it's just like really concerning 
how small he was for his height and age. So just something to take note of. I don't want to speculate, but perhaps, you know, he hadn't eaten in a while or maybe food wasn't always accessible to him. Something that's really unfortunate is they couldn't tell what color his eyes were because of his level of decomposition. He did have a lot of dental work according to the Doe Network's profile on him. And as you all know, I am not a dentist and so I'm going to kind of breeze through this and you know maybe jot these down in case you think this may be a family member or a friend of yours so his dental work would have been very expensive so he was probably in the middle class or maybe upper class because of you know all of the work that was done on him they made a point to say this would have been really expensive to get done so it's just kind of more likely that he wasn't in poverty, which does make, you know, him being so skinny kind of a question to me because if he could afford to get all this dental work, why was he, I want to say, more malnourished? And I'm really not trying to harp on this, but I'm looking at a, an article from the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, which I will link in my show notes. But they say that... It, at the very least, a grown man with a BMI of 19, which is just like the lowest healthy weight essentially, would have 128 pounds. He would have need needed to be 5'4 for him not to be underweight. So he definitely was underweight. So it's just kind of curious to me that he had such expensive dental work but he was so underweight according to a government medical website anyways on to the dental records i'll stop talking about this man's weight he had a stainless steel crown on tooth number 10 he had no evidence of decay in his mouth at all and he had extensive restorations on remaining teeth except for number 22 through number 28. And it also says teeth number one, 16, and 17 are not clinically evident. And I honestly have no idea what that means. Despite searching Google, I looked to see what not clinically evident meant in terms of dentistry. I'm not sure if it means they were missing or if that means like there was no work done. I'm really not sure. But if you bring that to a dentist, I'm sure they'll know what it means. I am just like not a rocket scientist over here. I don't know. Mary Doncourt, who is the lead investigator for this case, consulted nearby dentists and none of them said it was their work, which is so cool to me. Sorry to kind of interject, but it's really cool to me that dentists have like their own style of work and they're able to be like, nope, not mine. It's just like really interesting to me. That's like not the field that I studied at all. I secretly wanted to be a dentist, but I could not do chemistry to save my life. And so it's just really cool that dentists have their own, you know, style. And it can also really help Jane and John Doe's because their style is like apparently really evident that they're able to say, nope, not any of my patients. 
So with local dentists saying it wasn't their work, it wasn't their style, she also contacted the director of University of Maryland's Museum of Dentistry, and he said he believed the work was done outside of the United States. So Mary Doncourt is wondering if he could have came from another country through the Wilmington port because he was never reported missing. I looked on NamUs myself for North Carolina, Virginia, West Virginia, and Kentucky, all of those like northern, all the states above North Carolina since he likely went south after he was put in the river. And I looked for people matching his description and I also played with the dates and heights and there was no person that even showed up, not even just someone who didn't look like his sketch. So I would be really surprised if this man was reported missing. The investigator said he definitely wasn't, so I'm not sure if they went through like the whole name is database and looked for him, but she does think that he may have come from Outside of the United States, maybe he was military and he was going to North Carolina to serve and maybe learn some stuff from U.S. troops, but we really can't be sure. And similarly to my last episode about the Finley Creek Jane Doe, this John Doe was unfortunately cremated and to make matters even worse, they buried his cremains at sea. So there's no way we can identify him through DNA. We can only rely on his dental work to positively identify him. And thankfully, he did have quite a lot of dental work. It's just unfortunate that we're not going to be able to identify him through DNA. DNA, in my opinion, is just like the best way to identify someone because you, you just like never know. Um, especially for Jane and John Doe's who maybe like didn't have any fillings or any type of like restorative procedures done for them. Um, it's just kind of unfortunate that, you know, that's what we have to rely on. So it's really important that we get his story out there. And another thing I did want to note is he had a form of mild scoliosis and I know scoliosis isn't necessarily something that everyone knows that they have. From my understanding, I don't have scoliosis, but I think it's one of those things where, you know, if you get a physical done or you get some type of scan done or if your back is really causing you problems and a doctor looks at your back specifically, I think that's the most common ways that scoliosis is identified or diagnosed. And so we're not really sure if he knew he had scoliosis. We do know he had access to healthcare, and so possibly he did know and maybe his family knew as well. But it's just something to kind of keep in mind and kind of unfortunate, but also kind of good. He didn't have any scars or marks or anything like that. Um, I always joke that the best way to make sure that you're not a Jane or John Doe is to get a tattoo that's really meaningful to you and that your whole family knows you have because it's true if you see someone you know with a specific person's name or something and that person knows and your family knows that you have that tattoo it will make it a lot easier to be identified and that's so morbid that you 
might need to plan. Maybe if you're crazy like me, you might plan to not become a Jane or John Doe. He didn't have any evident scars or marks, which is good. He didn't get hurt in his lifetime. And so that is awesome. His sketches, I'm not sure which one I'm going to use yet, but his sketches do kind of vary. There is a great one where it combines the two sketches of him that have come out, but the two do look quite different. One looks kind of like a skinnier man and one also looks like more of a stockier man. So it's just hard knowing which one that you should use because maybe the sketch artist had a theory that he was stockier before he was put in whatever horrible situation he was put into. So no matter which one I choose, which I'm leaning towards the combination of both of them, it kind of looks like they used Photoshop and laid them on top of each other and made both layers visible. But no matter which one I end up using, please go ahead and look at the Doe Network profile on him. I will link it below. But if you are missing someone who, you know, could have been him and who could have been missing before 1977, I really recommend going ahead and looking at that. And the people that you should contact if you do think it is your loved one or if you somehow remember seeing him in 1977 or earlier, you should contact the North Carolina Office of the Chief Medical Examiner and the contact person is Clyde Gibbs. Their phone number is 919-743-9000 or 800-672-7042. Or you can contact the Brunswick County Sheriff and it's Captain Phil Perry as your contact person. And their phone number is 910-880-4920. Before I go, I wanted to let you all know I do have a private story on Instagram where I do show my face and I show a little bit more of the behind the scenes. And I add people who are super active and who I like to message a lot on Instagram. And that kind of just like makes me feel a little bit safer that I'm in control of who can see my face. Again, I'm like a total crime junkie, like stay weird, stay, stay, what is it? Stay rude, stay weird, stay alive. I am a total crime junkie and I'm just like so like paranoid about everything. And so... That's why I'm not out here advertising my face or anything like that. Safety is my number one concern for everyone, including myself and my family. So I do have a private story on there. All I do is I kind of just like whenever I message with people back and forth and, you know, I follow them and kind of like get a feel for who they are, then I'll add them to my private story. And so if you are interested in being on my private story, definitely follow me on the Doe Identify podcast. And also I do polls and everything. I'll kind of ask like what episodes I should do. For example, today I asked a question about my cover art. Um, and that question was, I noticed how similar my cover art or I guess episode art, is to Up and Vanished. And I am a huge Up and Vanished fan. Right when they were releasing their season two is when I got super duper into podcasts. And 
But now that I made my own podcast, I was like brainstorming. And I don't know if it was just because like I was familiar with that or something, but I wanted someone with no face because, you know, it kind of represents no identity. And I wanted, you know, like a sky behind them and like because obviously most Jane and John does are found outdoors and so that was my idea and then I was like looking on my podcast and I was like oh I definitely made almost identical cover art as Up and Vanish but from my knowledge they are kind of like done using that podcast to make episodes and they're kind of moving on to like other podcasts that they have created And so I asked my Instagram followers if, you know, if I should change my cover art because I don't want to be a copycat or if I should just leave it because it doesn't really matter. They're not even posting anymore anyways. And everyone said to just leave it. And so I'm super thankful for you all who give me feedback on there. But I invite everyone who listens to me to follow me on Instagram. I would love to get your feedback during polls. And I would also love to show you some of the behind the scenes of what it looks like when I'm editing or what cases I'm considering doing next. But that is all that I have for you all this week. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Brunswick County John Doe's story. Whether that means you share his Doe network profile link or if you share a link to my podcast episode, whatever it is or whatever is easiest for you, I'm totally happy with it as long as we're getting his face out there. That is completely all that matters. And thank you so much for all of you who do that. I get messages all the time and tags of people who have shared my podcast or a link to their profiles and group pages. And I just really appreciate everyone who does that because that is what my podcast is about is getting names out there, getting interest built up for particular faces and hopefully identifying them. So thank you so much for doing that, everyone. And I will be back very soon, hopefully, with a brand new podcast episode.